All right, welcome to the final session of this listener's commentary on Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. We're going to look at the last little chunk of the letter in this session, 5, 12 through 28. And this section really com- contains like three parts. The first bit is instructions on how to relate to Christian leaders. The second part is just like general collection of uh, exhortations and encouragement to the church, and then the conclusion. So those three parts, the first little bit, 12 through 14, is all about uh, our Christians' relationship to their leaders in the church. And so Paul says this, First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 12, But we ask you, brothers and sisters, to recognize those who diligently labor among you and are in leadership over you in the Lord and give you instruction and that you regard them very highly in love because of their work. So that's his instruction to Christians in relationship to their leaders. A couple things to observe out of that. Notice that he says, or the way he describes leaders. Leaders are those who diligently labor among you who are in leadership over you, and who give you instruction. Those three bits of instructions about Christian leaders. The first description is they diligently labor among you. And that word labor has the idea of toil, hard work. So they they work hard among you. And it's an important instruction. And one tells the Christians that your leaders are hard workers and they're working to take care of you. And it says to leaders, that's you should expect that. Like, this is hard work. Christian leadership, caring for God's people, being shepherds of God's flock, expect it to be hard work. So they diligently labor among you. They, they exercise leadership over you, or some translations, they have charge over you. The idea, as F.F. F. Bruce says, it's leading, protecting, and caring for. In fact, it's used for elders in 1 Timothy 3 of taking care of one's own house. Um, it's used in 1 Timothy chapter 5 for ruling well, leading well. And so it's this idea of leading and caring for and managing and protecting, having charge over in such a way for the good of the people. So the, the leaders, uh, they, they have charge over you. They're not just in a position. They are in a position to lead protect and care for you. And then they also give you instruction, give you instruction. And that word instruction is from nutheo in Greek, which usually means admonish or warn. Can sometimes mean general instruction, but often it's correcting wrong. Uh, It's warning you and showing you the right way to go. And so notice that, that the three activities of Christian leaders are to diligently labor, to lead you and have charge over you, and to instruct and warn you in the Christian faith. Now, how are Christians in general supposed to respond to that? Well, he says Christians should regard them very highly in love because of their work. And so um, Christian response to that is to regard. And the idea in this context is to acknowledge them as those in charge, right? To uh, honor their leadership. That's the idea It's to respect them, to recognize them as your leaders. And then he says to esteem them very highly or to regard them very highly because of their work. And so you recognize them and you respond to them with consider them very highly indeed, literally is how it's worded. And so you make sure you give them the highest possible honor, not just because of their title, but because, notice, of their work. 
since they are giving their time, their energy, their efforts, they're working and laboring diligently among you, you actually honor them for that work. And he says, notice, to do so in love, that this honor is given not merely as a duty, but out of love for them, Christ-like kind of love, agape love for them. You demonstrate your love for your leaders by acknowledging their leadership and treating them with honor. Now, after that, Paul begins then just kind of a random collection of general instructions and encouragement to the Christian, to the church in Thessalonica. It's pretty common where you string together some instructions, some behavioral instructions, and that's what we have here. And so his first one is live in peace with one another. The idea of peace is harmony, not just the absence of conflict. It's the presence of wholeness and blessingness. So live together in harmony as brothers and sisters in Christ, right? So live together in harmony with your fellow Christians. And next he says, we urge you, brothers and sisters, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. And so our responsibility in the church is to help each other out, uh, depending on our need. And so admonish the unruly is the first one, he says. To admonish is the same word that's translated instruction there at the end of verse 12. It's, it's to warn. It's to challenge. It's to instruct, right? Like, no, you're not going the right way. So admonish, warn the unruly. Who are the unruly? Well, this is the only time this specific form of that word shows up in the New Testament, but derivatives of it show up in 2 Thessalonians, and it's only in both the Thessalonian letters where we see this word family. Uh, and it's connected in 2 Thessalonians specifically to uh, not working to take care of yourself, but mooching off of others. It's the idea of being a loafer and a mooch. It's somebody who's disorderly, and they're disorderly in the context of the Thessalonian correspondence, specifically by figuring, oh, I don't need to work. My fellow Christians will take care of me. And Paul says, no, that we don't, that's not the way we operate. If we can work, we do work to make sure we don't take advantage of people. So admonish here to the brothers and sisters of the church, admonish those who are living that way. Admonish those who are loafing around and mooching off the generosity of their fellow Christians. Next, he says, encourage the faint-hearted. The faint-hearted are the weak, the discouraged, the tired, the worn out. And he says, encourage them, build them up, right? Like the idea of that word encourage here is it's not parakaleo, to exhort, but it's uh, from the verb to console, to cheer up, to give comfort, paramutheomai in the Greek. And so you want to you give comfort and consolation and and support them. So you do that to the faint-hearted. The NIV translates the timid, those who are fearful, downcast, and discouraged. And so support them. Help the weak, he says. Help the weak, those who are just uh, too weak to do it on their uh, own. Support them. Literally, uh, kind of be like a, a leaning post for them. Hold up against a wall that they can lean up against because they're worn out and they're tired and they're, they can't they can't go it alone. Uh, be patient, he says, towards all men. Um, and so notice that when he says be patient with everyone, we've moved beyond just your fellow Christians. Your fellow Christians and everyone else, demonstrate patience. Have a, a long fuse with people. Don't be easily irritated. Uh, don't lose your temper, right? Uh, you be patient and kind-hearted. Notice all of those four instructions there focus on Christians who are weak, tired, or are in some way disorderly, causing problems. Th these are Christians that need help, right? 
they need help, they need support, they need encouragement, they need correction. Um, and he's calling us to turn our attention to them so that we can help them out. And then as an outgrowth, seemingly, about his statement of being patient with everyone, in verse 15, he notes a, a behavior of Christians that is unique and distinctive in the teaching of Jesus is something that's supposed to mark us as God's people. He says, see to it that no one repays one another with evil for evil, but always seek what is good for one another and for all people. So don't repay evil for evil. No tit for tat. No eye for eye. No, well, you did me wrong, so I'm going to get you. Even if it's in your own mind or even if it's passive aggressive behavior, we don't do that. That's not the Christian way. So make sure that no one repays evil for evil. In fact, this is uh, so distinctive of the, the Christian teaching, and it flows out of the teaching of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus tells us we don't do that. We don't, re we don't retaliate with eye for an eye, but we love our enemies. We pray for those who persecute us. We bless those who curse us, right? We're actively kind for people who even have harmed us or done wrong to us. Notice, Paul says the same thing. He says, don't repay evil for evil. Don't pay people back that way, but always seek what is good. That's the active kindness part. So it's not enough just to avoid doing wrong or evil or harming somebody. Now we need to replace that with actively doing good for them, doing kind deeds, being benevolent and being helpful when and where we can. So somebody who has... Uh, wounded you or who's been out to get you, if there's an opportunity where you can actually meet a legitimate need of theirs, do it. Do what's good for them. Always seek. Always be ready and prepared to do what's good for one another, your fellow Christians, and for all people, even for unbelievers, even for, the, for those unbelievers who are stirring up trouble and being hostile towards the church in Thessalonica or wherever you live, do good for them. And so don't repay evil for evil, but always seek what is good. Do active kindness for them. Then a handful just of um, quick little instructions in verses 16 through 18. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. And so those three injunctions there, rejoice always. Uh, that Christians are to be marked by joy. We see this all over the place in Paul's writings. Philippians 4.4 4 is probably one of the most well-known. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Always. All the time. Not just when you feel like it. Not some of the time. Rejoice always. That uh, joy is always appropriate for God's people because of our faith in God. And because of that confidence we have in God's goodness, in God's wisdom, because of the confidence we have in the ultimate outcome of our life, because of God's power and goodness, um, we can rejoice even in the midst of difficulty. And so if our joy is lacking, often our faith in God and his promises is lacking too. Rejoice always is ultimately an expression of our confidence in God. So rejoice always, all the time. Pray without ceasing. And so another thing that's supposed to mark us routinely and regularly all the time is praying. Pray always at all times that we are to go about our life with a conscious awareness of God's presence among us so that we have an ongoing conversation with God throughout the day. 
Prayers are continually on our mind, heart, and even on our lips. Prayer must characterize us. We're not just supposed to have a prayer life. We're supposed to live a life of prayer. Pray all the time. One of my favorite authors on prayer is an old classic writer, Ian Bounds, and in his book, The Essentials of Prayer, he writes, to be too busy with God's work, to commune with God, to be too busy doing church work without taking time to talk to God about his work is the highway to backsliding. And many people have walked therein to the hurt of their own immortal souls. And so whatever your work is on behalf of God, whether it's raising your kids, whether it's vocational ministry, whether it's your job and using that as your service to Christ, whatever it is, um, prayer is to undergird all of that and to constantly be percolating up throughout the day. Pray continually. Um, prayer is the tool with which we as God's people work. And so we're always in prayer. Um, and that doesn't happen on accident. We're going to have to actually arrange our life to live that way. So pray without ceasing. And then the last one is, and in everything give thanks. Notice, rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks. Always, without ceasing, in everything. That he's helping us realize that these are some behaviors that are to mark our life as God's people all the time. And so here, the last one, in everything give thanks. In every kind of circumstance, in every kind of situation, give thanks. Be marked by thanksgiving. Um, and in fact, thankfulness leads to joy. Thankfulness is expressed in prayer. And so this really all goes together as we begin to practice regular routine thankfulness for who God is and what he's done for us and what he's given us in Christ. And we do that prayerfully on an ongoing basis throughout the day. That'll increase our joy. And then Paul ends those three little instructions with the reminder that this is God's will for you. This is what God wants. This is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. So make sure you're learning how to rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and give thanks in everything because that's what God wants you to do. Verse 19 uh, through 22 all revolves around the topic of uh, the spirit and prophetic utterances particularly and how we handle that. Um, and the reason for that is because in the early church in Paul's day and age, they didn't have the written New Testament. Uh, God had poured out the gift of prophecy on them. And that's one of the ways that the church moved forward and the church encouraged one another. There's people among them who had the gift of prophecy. But we also know from the New Testament that uh, certain people claimed that gift and then used it in self-serving sorts of ways and didn't really have that gift, or they were misusing or misinterpreting that gift, and however it played out. And so the New Testament routinely has instructions about how to approach that sort of thing. Paul's instruction here is, now, I want to make sure you think clearly about this gift. So he says, don't quench the spirit. In other words, the idea of quench, put out the fire of, right? Like, don't squelch, don't pour water on the flame of the Spirit, do not utterly reject prophetic utterances or prophecies. In other words, don't get rid of them out of hand. And so when he says, don't quench the Spirit, he means the Spirit's work in total among you. So you don't want to quench that. One of the ways the Spirit is working among them is through the gift of prophecy that he's given to certain individuals. And he says, don't utterly, utterly reject prophecies. Don't reject them out of hand. Like, just, uh, well, I don't buy that. Don't believe that. I'm done with that. And just reject it out of hand. Don't do that, he says, but, verse 21, examine everything. So if someone says, oh, I've got a prophecy from the Lord, don't just Im immediately say, ah, forget it, don't buy that. But examine everything. Test it. 
uh, test the individual, test his character, test, right? Like the source is important in, in scripture for testing prophecy, test the former statements of this person's prophecy, test how it accords with what's known of God's will, right? So examine everything, uh, hold firmly to that which is good, abstain from every form of evil. And so in the terms of quenching the spirit, particularly with regard to prophecies, examine it if it's something that is good. It's in keeping with what we know of Jesus and Jesus' teaching and the word of God. If it is encouraging character that's in keeping with the character of Jesus and with the clear teaching of the Bible. If all of that is, then hold fast to that. Um, on the flip side, if not, abstain from that. Abstain from every form of evil because the Spirit of God, in whatever way he works among you, is not going to go against the Son of God or God the Father in what he says and what he teaches. The Spirit of God is intended to stir up the, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience. And so whatever way the Spirit is working among you and however it's working in and through, say, a gift of prophecy or whatever, it's going to be in accordance with those things. And if it's not, and if the fruit of it is not, then there's a problem. Abstain from it. That's his point. And so don't quench the Spirit. Don't uh, reject prophetic utterances out of hand. Instead, examine everything. Test it. What's good, keep it. What's not good, throw it away. With that, the body of the letter is over, and Paul simply has a prayer wish at the end, and then his greetings to and from the church. And so he says in verse 23, Now, may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. And so this prayer wish, he's praying for God himself to set them apart wholly for himself, to consecrate them to God and, and his purposes, so that their life would be uh, honoring to God and holy. That's the idea of sanctify. Sanctifica sanctification, we looked at earlier in chapter 4, sanctify here from the same root word as the word holy. It's this holify you, to make you holy gods, both in position and in the way you live your life. So may the God of peace, the God who brings peace, works for peace amongst his people, right? Who's putting all things back together to proper working order and is going to bring peace in this world, the God of peace, set you apart fully for himself, and may your spirit and soul and body be complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus. And so his prayer wish is that they would reach maturity. They would reach wholeness and completeness in Christ. From the inner man to the outer man, spirit and soul, inner man, right? Two components of the inner man and the body, right? Your physical body. So from the inside out, may you be whole and mature and complete in Christ without blame. So blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus. And so Paul's praying that they would they would grow and they would mature and they would stand firm and they would be holy gods. And so they could live in this world in a way that would make them blameless at the coming of Jesus. And then he says, faithful is he who calls you and he will also do it. And this is Paul's expression of confidence. As he prays, he believes God is faithful. Faithful, God can do this, right? God is faithful to take his people and form them fully in himself. So faithful is he who calls you, God himself, he will also do it. That's Paul's prayer wish for them, and that's Paul's confidence in God. Then he says to them, brothers and sisters, pray for us. And so he invites the church to pray for Paul while he travels, while he preaches, while he's dealing with whatever difficulties he's dealing with. Pray for us. Then he says, greet all the brothers and sisters with a holy kiss, because that was a standard way of greeting in their 
cultural context, right? The kiss on the cheek, but make it a holy kiss, right? Like this is a kiss set apart to, as God's family, you're, you're welcoming each other. So in God's family, there should be warm family greetings is the idea, and it should be holy and pure. So greet one another with a holy kiss. And then he says, I put you under oath by the Lord Jesus. Notice the seriousness of this. Uh, I put you under oath by the Lord Jesus to have this letter read to all the brothers and sisters. And so he's serious. He wants them to take this letter that he's sending them, and he wants to read it to the whole church. So gather the whole church together. Make sure everyone hears this letter. And I suspect the reason he says it like this here is letter writing um, was really a new thing in his ministry. They're a brand new church. As best as I can tell, this is the first letter Paul has written to a church. At least it's the first letter I think that we have in our possession because I put Galatians later than it. Um, and so this is a, a new feature of Paul's ministry. And so he wants them to know, I, I know this is important. This isn't just for the leaders of the church. This is for the whole church. I want the whole church to hear this letter. This is part of my ministry to you as your apostle and the one who founded your church. So have this letter read to all the brothers and sisters. And then he signs off with, may the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. And so his final sign off is a wish for them to experience increasingly and fully the grace of God that's theirs in Jesus Christ. And with that, the letter of 1 Thessalonians comes to an end. Now, there's plenty of exhortation in there, and so we don't need to do tons by way of reflection. But let me just step back and look at the, the whole for a second and offer one little reflection as a way of wrapping up this section. And that's this, that this, um, this little section and sections like this in Paul's letters reminds us that the church is not so much a building and an organization as a people. And Paul's leadership in the church is rarely focused on building an organization. It's almost exclusively focused on forming a people who embody the kind of interpersonal relationships among them that honor Jesus, that Jesus wants them to. And so he's, he's interested in forming a people who can reflect the wisdom and goodness and truth of God to each other and back into the world. And so we in our churches need to constantly fight against the urge to think primarily in terms of a church organization with events and programs and all of that. Not that those things don't happen, but those are secondary and their job is to serve the primary thing. And the primary thing is the people and the formation of those people in Christ, so that increasingly the people are being built up, and as Paul says here, that they would be complete without blame at the coming of the Lord Jesus, so that they would live together in harmony uh, as brothers and sisters, as one new family in Christ. And so uh, all of that will help God's people actually be the people who God called them to be.